0: Please be seated. Before I open God's word, let's go to Him in prayer. Lord God Almighty, we ask not to be enrolled among the earthly great and rich, but to be numbered with the spiritually blessed. Would you make it our present supreme preserving concern to enjoy those blessings which are spiritual in their nature, eternal in their existence, and satisfying in their possession? Father, we know that that sort of blessing is found in Jesus Christ alone, and so we ask that you would give us a great abundance of the supply of the Spirit of Christ that we may be prepared for every duty love you in all mercies, submit to you in every trial, trust you in walking in darkness, and have peace amidst life's changes. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. If you would, take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. We've been studying this book for well over a year now. Hebrews largely for the first 12 chapters was a deep deeply doctrinal book it was a book full of teaching but it was a very practical teaching because it's the the doctrine or the teaching of the superiority of jesus christ now what is jesus superior to hebrews wants to tell you everything jesus is better than everything that's what it's been saying from Hebrews 1 through chapter 12. Jesus is better in every way than everything else in heaven and on earth. Now in this 13th chapter, it becomes extremely practical. It's full of exhortations. And and the connection from the doctrinal to the practical is this. If Jesus is really superior to you, if you can really say what we just prayed via song, may Jesus Christ be praised, then it is going to radically reorient how you live. Your life is going to be substantially different because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ than anybody else on the face of the earth. And it makes sense because as someone who professes to be redeemed by the cross of Christ, born again by the work of the Holy Spirit and living to the glory of God, how could our lives not look extraordinarily different? from those who have never been redeemed, never had the indwelling Holy Spirit, and do not know what it is to live to the glory of God. And so chapter 13 is full of exhortation. We saw it two weeks ago, verses one through three, how Jesus reorients our relationships with one another in the church, how you and I relate to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then last week, we saw how Jesus reorients our nearest human relationship, our dearest human relationship, and that's the marriage. How it reorients our love for one another. And Christians have long been known for our opposition to marital deviancy, but we should just as much be known for our great love and cherishing of biblical marriage. Now today, we're going to look at how the, crea- how the Christian relates to stuff, particularly money. And I wanted you to hear me from the very beginning. Money is not bad, but the danger of money is that we can look to money for what only Jesus can actually provide. See, there's a looming danger for all of us that we would love money more than we love Jesus and not even know it. This is a timely word for all of us. I'm preaching to you as much as I am to me. Listen now to God's word, Hebrews chapter 13, verses five and six. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. I suppose that there's probably many folks in this room who've had occasions to meet people who are just unimaginably wealthy. Uh, People who, you you look at the size of their home or the meals that they eat or the travel that they do, and, and it can be pretty, pretty incredible to us. But I wonder if you've ever thought about this. Compared to the rest of the world, you and I are unimaginably wealthy. Yeah, I I don't know. The only person I know what's in their bank account in this church is me. I don't know what anybody else has, but I know that in comparison with the rest of the world, we would be considered unimaginably wealthy just take the median household income of Beaufort, $54,000. Let's say that you're a family of four making $54,000 a year. You are richer than 90% of the world's population. In fact, your income is 7.1 times larger than the global median. With about 8 billion people on earth, that means that you are wealthier than about 7.2 billion people alive today. You know, even if you even if you give away 10% of your income if you tithe, you're still wealthier than 89% of the world. Now, I know that in some ways that's comparing apples and oranges because the cost of living is high, but it does give us some perspective, doesn't it, when the Bible speaks to us about the love of money. This kind of wealth that I'm talking about was not the case with the Hebrew Christians to whom this letter was written. And in fact, the more I thought through this, it's a little bit surprising that the author of Hebrews would warn them about money because these are a people who, because of their profession of faith, they have been cast to the fringes of society. And some of them have had their homes plundered. Some of them are are at risk of going to prison because of their love for Christ. These are not a wealthy people, and in the days ahead, they're likely to get poorer and poorer and poorer as they get pushed further and further to the fringes of society, and people will boycott their businesses and refuse to do business with them because they are professing faith in Christ. But he's still saying, even to them, don't let money preoccupy you. Don't let desire for money, grab an inordinate place in your heart because Jesus alone deserves that place. And so think about this, dear ones, dear brothers and sisters. If this persecuted and somewhat impoverished congregation needed to be warned against the love of money, how much more do you and me this is a bit, an area that we must be watchful about our own hearts. See, money and affluence are normative in our experience. I have a friend who pastors a very, very, very wealthy church, and, and he talks about the vortex of wealth, how it just sucks you in so that it becomes the norm, and you, you crave it, and you begin to think you deserve it. You deserve what everybody else has. I think the word vortex is a great word for it because it does. It just sucks you in and you don't even know it's happening. And the story for many professing believers through the years has been that they began the race well, but didn't finish the race because their love of money eclipsed their love for Christ. Charles Spurgeon said rightly, there is no trial of our faith like affluence. There's no trial of our faith like affluence, and that is the trial that you and I are living through right now, and most of us probably have no idea how our faith is being tested by it. What we're going to do this morning is try to get a grip on money from God's perspective and to ensure that money is not gripping us. We're going to look at three things from this text to help us understand that. First, we're we're going to look at God's perspective on money and wealth. Why does he give us money? What does he expect us to do with it? That's the first thing. The second thing, we'll look at the danger of money. And then third, we're going to talk about how Jesus is better, particularly how Jesus is better than money and stuff. So first, let's think about money from God's perspective. Verse 5, keep yourself, keep your life free from the love of money. I, I don't know how many of you are familiar with this verse before today, but I suppose everyone, even, even unbelievers, probably are familiar with a similar verse, 1 Timothy 6.10 where Paul says money is the root of all. No, wait, Paul doesn't say money is the root of all evil. What did he say there? The love of money is the root of all evil, all kinds of evil. It's the same point that Hebrews is making here. People misquote it all the time. Money isn't the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money itself is not sinful, but the love of money perpetuates all sorts of evil acts. Uh, there's a, a bit of a theme going in Hebrews where he talks about these good things, relationship and marriage and sexuality and now money. And They're all good things, but they're bad when we don't submit them to Scripture. They're bad when, when they become more precious to us than Jesus himself. In other words, the problem isn't money. The problem is our hearts, Money is a good thing, and with money, I'm going to include material possessions, the things that money can help us to obtain. It was created by God to be a good gift for His people and for the flourishing of humanity. You know, there's no one verse that you can point to in Scripture that gives us a comprehensive theology of money But it's always been part of God's design for the world. So from the very beginning, man works and keeps the garden. So what's he doing? He's increasing the value of the dirt until it yields something that is tradable and marketable and monetizable. It's through that improvement and monetization of of what we have. Whether we're talking about agriculture six thousand years ago or or goods and services today, it's through those labors that God has generally provided for his people. And so that means that no matter what trade or field we're in, or if we're retired and we're living off of our investments, we are ultimately dependent upon God for every penny of his provision for our lives. We prayed this earlier Give us this day our daily bread. And in Jesus teaching us to pray that every day, he's teaching us every day to have a posture of dependence before God for all our needs, even the most basic, things like bread and water. We are utterly dependent upon him for it. Now, certainly, God could have not ordained work to be the means. He could have ordained some other way that he would drop these things to us out of heaven, like he did with manna. So why is it that he gave us wealth through work? Well, it's because in God's economy, his desire and his design is that we would be given limited resources. We don't have infinite resources today, and we are stewards of those limited resources, And so you and I do not have infinite funds. We have finite funds. And so all day, every day, we have to steward how we are going to use those funds. And that stewardship is one of the ways that we can glorify God. He owns everything, including me and everything I own. And so my stewardship needs to constantly be asking the question, how can I steward this to the glory of God? You know, the way we use our resources is really an x-ray of our hearts. Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we had a big computer screen in here and could pull up any one of our bank accounts right now and look at how each other spends our money, it would show where our treasure is. It would show what our heart really, really values. And that's what stewardship is. It's using the resources God entrusts to us for what we value most. Now, typically, when we think of stewardship, we think about the tithe. That's 10%, and, and that's right. But stewardship is not simply 10%, and I get to do whatever I want with the other 90 It's how do I use 100% of my money in the way that God intends it? The owner of it intends it. So the question isn't really how much of my money do I have to give to God. It's already God's money. The question is how am I to faithfully steward all of God's money that he has entrusted to me? It goes well beyond just the 10% of tithing. Let me name for you a few ways that the scriptures then tell us, uh, tell us to, to steward our money. First, in, in 1 Timothy 5.8, God tells us that we should use our money to buy food and housing for ourselves and for our families. Listen to that verse, 1 Timothy 5.8. If anyone doesn't provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Also, we we should invest and save money to be used for his purposes in the future. So, for example, saving for retirement so that we're not dependent on others and so that hopefully we have more time to serve Christ and the kingdom in our retirement. You do realize that is the purpose of retirement, to have more time to serve Christ with. Well, listen to 1 Thessalonians 4.12. Paul urges the Thessalonians to walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. In other words, you should save, you should budget well so that you have finances, so that you, you're not dependent on others. Third, we should use our money to pay taxes. Mark 12, verse 17, Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. We should use our money to be generous. Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We should use our wealth for the good of our neighbor and for the spread of the gospel. And then, of course, God's desire isn't that we be ascetics, that we have no money for ourselves, and that we live in absolute poverty? We shouldn't be afraid to enjoy our money, but we must enjoy it the right way. Listen to 1 Timothy 4.4. 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And so as long as it propels you into a life of thankfulness to God, then enjoy your money. Enjoy it and use it in that way, that it would grow to the glory of God. Now, here's one neat thing that happens. As you mature as a Christian, those last two things begin to run together. Being generous and enjoying your money. The more you grow in Christ, the more you use it for others, and the more joy it brings you. I I was uh, speaking with a dear friend who, who works very, very hard at his job, and he, he's reached the age of retirement, and I said, brother, are you, are you going to retire anytime? And he just laughed and said, no plans. And I said, why not? And he said, because I love to be able to give. Any he meant it sincerely. He loved to be able to give. The more we grow in Christ, the more we begin to look at money from God's perspective, the more of a joy it becomes to be generous to the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. Let me ask you, does your use of money, does your perspective on money align with God's perspective on money? Or to ask it differently, would your relationship with money be radically different if Jesus Christ were never crucified and resurrected? Would, would your checking account look radically different if Jesus Christ were not crucified and resurrected? I'm not simply talking about the tithe. I'm asking you, is all of your finances seen as a stewardship to the glory of God. Whether it's being generous towards your neighbor and towards the work of the gospel, whether it's the tithe, whether it's paying bills and taxes, or simply enjoying what God has provided for you, all of it needs to be brought into alignment with God's perspective on money. You know, the Puritans used to say that a Christian loves the Lord and uses the world. So often, though, what we can be guilty of is loving the world and using what the Lord has provided us, not for his glory, but to get more and more of the world. You can tell a lot about a person's spiritual state from where their heart, their affections are set. I can remember uh, Doug Kelly, Dr. Kelly discipled me for years, Um, one of the godliest saints I know. He went to a church that uh, had really grown lukewarm. This was back in the 1970s and the church had grown lukewarm and he started preaching the gospel and people started getting converted and he said, you know, Alex, the way I knew that it was sincere was that these stingy Presbyterians were actually becoming generous people. What's your treasure? God has designed the world so that the way we steward our funds reveals where our treasure is. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, let's think now about the danger of the love of money. We have to acknowledge money is a good gift or else we're going to reject what God has kindly given to us. But we also have to realize at the same time, money can be dangerous to borrow the language of the Philistines and to alter it a little bit. Poverty has killed its thousands, but prosperity has killed its tens of thousands. That's why in Proverbs 30, Agur prays this incredibly wise prayer. Will you flip over there with me? This is a good prayer to pray when it comes to money. Proverbs 30 verses 8 and 9, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Is that your disposition to money, that there is a, there's a ditch on either side, and you can be in danger of either one? And, and so the, the author of Proverbs here is saying, don't give me poverty lest I be tempted to steal, but don't give me such riches that I be tempted to forget about you. I fear that for most Christians in our world, in our circles, the latter is the danger, that we have such affluence that we forget about God. We're probably less like Agar and more like John D. Rockefeller. Rockefeller was the world's first billionaire, and he was asked by a reporter one time, Mr. Rockefeller, how much will be enough? And the answer was, just a little bit more. Rockefeller was a professing Christian. There's great danger to wealth But you know, as I was thinking about it this week, even with our great wealth by worldly standards, I could only recall two Christians in my life. I've been a a believer since the year 2000. So, in 23 years, I could only recall two Christians who said to me, I really struggle with the love of money. I've had many Christians say, You know, I struggle with anger, or I struggle with patience, or I struggle with lust. But I could only recall two who have ever said to me, I really struggle with the love of money. Now here's what that means. Either this congregation among all people has been insulated from that sin more than anybody else in the history of the world, or maybe we don't realize what a grip money has on us. We don't realize how easy it is to love money. It'd be so nice if there were a a litmus test where we could just rub our fingers on it and and pour a little solution on it and say it would say either yes you're a money-grubbing fool or no you're not. That kind of test doesn't exist but there is a test and the test is in the time of trial you're going to cling to what you love the most. You're going to look for security and identity in those things that you trust in the most. And so, for example, the position that these Hebrew believers were in, if they would just disown Christ, they could go back to pretty normal life. They could go back to the temple and being accepted in society and their businesses would be better and they wouldn't get their stuff plundered like Hebrews 10 tells us they were. Choose Christ or choose wealth. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying to them. In the day of crisis, what do you trust in? Is it going to be God or money? And if what you really care about in this world is material security and material comfort, you are in great danger of turning to those things rather than Jesus Christ when the moment of decision comes. That was Demas's test. Do you remember Demas? He was a fellow missionary with Paul. That's a pretty great resume. I, resume. I traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys. But you know, as persecution increased, Demas started to feel the weight of it, and he had to make a choice. What's it gonna be? Is it gonna be God, or is it gonna be the comforts of this world? And Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, he says, you remember Demas' Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. We don't know if it was money. We know that Thessalonica was certainly a wealthy city. But what is clear is that Demas was in love with the world, and when tension came and when the test came, Demas turned away. It's exactly what Jesus told us in Matthew 6, 24, isn't it? No one can serve two masters, for he'll either, he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. But you can't, Jesus says, serve God and money. And that final exam is that moment of crisis where you're going to have to decide, what is it going to be? Now, most of us haven't ever had that kind of final exam, where we've had to say, do I want my livelihood, or do I want Jesus? but we have quizzes all the time, don't we? We have quizzes all the time where we have the opportunity to nurture our love for Christ and and to glorify Him and to bring everything in mastery to Him in our lives or to keep loving money and letting it have mastery over us. Money is not a bad thing, but money is a dangerous thing, and if you and I are careless about it, then we who are probably, we said in the top, whatever, 10% of people alive today, in the top 1% of people who have existed throughout history, we ought to be more careful than anyone about the danger of money. How do we deal with it then? Do we just make up our minds and say, I'm going to go take a vow of poverty? No. We must be utterly convinced in the core of our being, in the deepest parts of who we are, that Jesus Christ is better than everything else, even money. See, that's the only way we can have a right perspective on money, is to say that Jesus is infinitely better, and money is simply a tool for how I serve the Savior I love. That's the third thing. Jesus is better, Look at the last part of verse 5. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? In other words, money makes a wonderful gift, but a terrible God. And when you and I give to money and stuff, too prominent of a place in our hearts then we look to money and stuff for the things that Jesus alone can provide. And it should not be that way for Christians. For the Christian, we have said, I do not want anything to take the place of the supremacy of Christ in my heart and life. And so the right way, the way that we rightly use and relate to money is to first thrive in our relationship with Jesus Christ. There's several things that the text is going to tell us about how we do that in terms of how we should view Jesus in comparison with money. And first is that Jesus is better than money because he alone can provide us with real contentment. If Jesus couldn't provide us with contentment, then that's a pretty rude thing for verse 5 to say, be content with what you have. It's saying that because Jesus is able. He is, as we read in Psalm 16, our portion. And so we should be content with what we have. Now, to be clear, that does not mean it is bad to seek to grow our business or that it's bad uh, to, to try to grow our wealth. Christians ought to aim to be financially healthy. But this is a matter of the heart. If we look to money to make us content, it'll never happen. Because contentment, like John D. Rockefeller, contentment always requires just a little bit more. Now, Rockefeller wasn't the first person to say that. Listen listen to Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. Solomon speaking, a man who has had unimaginable wealth, says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. It's fleeting. It can't provide substantial contentment for your heart. See, As believers, we need to live in light of the reality that contentment is not about just a little more money in my bank account. It is for my life to be increasingly filled with the joy that Jesus Christ alone can provide. For us to be able to say, like Pastor Walton prayed earlier, that that Jesus is my highest good. This is the danger of so many who exhaust themselves working their fingers to the bone 100 hours a week to try to grow their wealth and reserving little time to know and walk with Christ. You may, by the labors of your hand, increase your wealth, but only frequently coming to Christ in his word will increase your contentment. Look with me at First Timothy 6 for a moment. Timothy's having to deal with false teachers in the church, and Paul's writing to him about how to deal with them. And Paul says, you know, these false teachers who are causing division, they're actually doing it because they're discontent people who are hungry for financial gain. They were, they were kind of the, the early charlatan uh, uh, forefathers of our health and wealth gospel preachers today. They were preaching what people wanted to hear in exchange for financial gain, And Paul says, that's a terrible, terrible mistake. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, starting at verse 6. After talking about those false teachers hungry for dishonest gain, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This is where Paul says that famous verse, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Do you get what he's saying? And this is only something the Christian can relate to. For an unbeliever, it is never enough simply to have food and clothing, like Paul just said here. But for the Christian, if you have Jesus and food on the table and clothes on your back, that is enough for you to be content. You have the recipe for contentment. Jesus, clothes, and a little bit of food. That's all that is required. I know that sounds simplistic. It's not simplistic, but it is simple. A Christian must cultivate contentment, saying, I will be content with what God gives me because I already have it all. How do I already have it all? Because I have Jesus, who is all. There's a story of a godly woman in the 17th century who was destitute except for a piece of bread and a glass of water and she sits down at her table to eat and she looked at her meager meal and said, what, all this and Jesus too? It was a feast for this woman because she had Jesus. Contentment says to our fellow Christians and to the world that Christ is with us, Christ is for us and Christ is enough for us. Hallelujah, all I need is Christ and he is enough. So Jesus is better in that he can bring contentment. Second, Jesus is better than wealth because only Jesus will never leave us. Some of you have had the traumatic experience of having wealth and then completely losing it. And the more precious your money is to you, the more traumatic the experience of losing it all will be. but there's a comparison here. The author of Hebrews wisely lays it out for us in verse five. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You could log into your bank account tomorrow and see a bunch of zeros there. Banks could crash. Somebody could steal your identity. It is all very much built upon the sand. And if you build your life upon those things, it will one day leave you. But Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we do well to build our lives upon the solid rock, which is Christ. The third comparison is that Jesus alone can help us. The text says, the Lord is my helper. Where do you run when things get hard? What do you trust in when you think of the future of your business amidst an unstable economy? What do you trust in when the bills exceed what's in your account? I remember when, uh, when Stephanie and I went to tour seminary before I went there, before I enrolled, I remember the extraordinary weight of uncertainty, of not knowing how God was going to meet my needs, it was clear to me God had called me there. The church that was behind us confirmed that, that God was calling me to go to seminary. But I was having a really hard time with the fact that God hadn't told me how he was going to make it work. And my, my godliest advisors just said, trust the Lord. He will, he will, if he's called you to this, then he will provide for you. And I said, I do trust him. I just need him to give me a spreadsheet to show me what he's going to do. <sighs> I was looking to wealth and to others to be my help. The Lord is my helper. It's good to have plans. It's good to budget wisely, but it's not good to put our trust in those other things and other people. And so often when things get hard, we do not run to Jesus Christ in prayer. We run to those other things I'm going to start landing the plane here, I promise. I'm not naive. I know there's fun stuff money can buy. And we might, through our wealth, work to preserve our health or to preserve an inheritance for our family or to preserve a legacy. There's a lot of things wealth can do. But there is something that money cannot do in a million years, and that is to prepare you to stand before a holy God. The question Hebrews asks here, what can man do to me? In this world, there's a lot man can do. The Hebrew believers knew that. You know, this this government official, he can cut my head off if he so desires. But there is nothing that man can do in terms of heavenly reality. And when our eyes, as Hebrews has been seeking to do, when our eyes have been fixed upon that city whose builder and foundation, whose designer and builder is God, the city that has foundations, when our eyes are fixed there, then we can begin to say, what can man do to me? What about the world to come? That's what, that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, don't be worried about what man can do to you in this life. Concern your heart with God and the day of judgment, if you have lived for your wealth and loved your wealth rather than living for and loving Christ. And let me warn you, friends, if you are living your life for the almighty dollar but not preparing to stand before almighty God, your money will abandon you in the end. You'll look around in the day of judgment and where your money, that pile of money once was, you will see a smoldering pile of ashes because it's going to be tested by fire and it will burn up. It will abandon you in the day of judgment. But do you know who won't? Jesus won't abandon you in the day of judgment. Only Jesus loves you. Only your money doesn't love you. So many people spend their lives building up a portfolio that one day will be utterly gone in the day they need it most. So what do we do instead? We need to acknowledge that all of us, to some degree or another, looks to money and wealth for what Jesus alone can provide. And when we find it, we need to repent of it and the more resistant we are to repenting of our love of money, the more it means that our money has gripped us and it's strangling the spiritual vitality out of us. And if we continue that, then our souls are in great danger. And so instead, let us come to the one who alone can help us, the one who alone will never abandon us, the one who alone can provide us with everlasting contentment, the Lord Jesus, who loved you and gave himself for you. There's a story that the great preacher John Chrysostom, really one of the great preachers from history, was called before the emperor for challenging the emperor's authority and telling the emperor that he had no authority apart from the word of God. And the emperor called him in and said to John, if you don't stop saying that, then I'll banish you. And Chrysostom said, this is my father's world. To where are you going to send me? The emperor said, okay, I'll kill you. And he said, no, you won't. My life is hid with Christ in God. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then the emperor said, well, then I'll drive you away from all your friends. And Chrysostom said, I have such a friend in heaven who will never leave me or forsake me. And the emperor said, fine, I'll take away all your possessions. And Chrysostom said, no, you won't. The Lord is my treasure. The Lord is my treasure. Do you hear that? He heard. It. He said exactly what this text said. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do. Even the emperor can do with me. That's a man who's content. And the author of Hebrews is inviting us to enjoy that same contentment, not found in wealth, but in Jesus alone. How do we apply this text? Three applications. First, you cannot take it with you but you can send it on ahead. Yesterday, we were helping a family in the church move. I was driving the U-Haul truck, and I could see behind me a long line of people following me to the new house, people from our church. It was, and I remember thinking to myself, this kind of feels like a funeral procession. And it reminded me of the old joke that preachers will often tell that you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer because you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead, can't you? When Jesus said store in Matthew 6, store up treasures in heaven, he's saying give generously for things that are eternal. Don't don't waste your money on earthly things that are soon going to pass away, that moths and rust are going to destroy, or thieves will break in and steal. Store up treasures in heaven. Now, that can sound selfish if I was saying, you, go, save your money, store up treasures for heaven so that you get great rewards. It would be selfish if not for the fact that Jesus had commanded us to do that because Jesus knows that whatever kingdom we, were, we are living for and giving to, that's where our hearts will be. And so he said, store up treasures in heaven because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Second, you can't outgive God. I think there are many people who agree with the principle of sacrificial Christian stewardship in theory. We like the thought of it. But you know, now's not really a good time. I, I need to get some things in order and then I'll give. Do you realize what you're really saying there? And what I'm really saying there when I say that, I'm saying I am afraid deep down that I'm going to be more generous than God, that I'm going to outgive God. And I'm afraid that if I give generously, God is going to respond by being stingy towards me. You can never outgive God. That's why in Malachi 3, that famous passage on the tithe, which Pastor Walton preached on two weeks ago, wonderful message, go back and listen to it, But God says, put me to the test. God has just accused his people of stealing from him. Well, what did we steal from you? He says, my tithes, that tenth belongs to me right off the bat, and you've been keeping it for yourself. And God says to him, put me to the test. That's one of the only places in Scripture that God commands us to test him. And what he's saying is, I want you to give generously, and I'll show you that you cannot be more generous to me than I can to you. You cannot outgive God. Third, finally, if God has convicted you of any of this today, I want to urge you right now to repent. We're going to sing, Be Thou My Vision in a moment. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. If you are seeing in your heart areas where you have loved your wealth and it is keeping you from fully loving Christ, repent now. Repent now. You know the story of Zacchaeus, don't you? He was a wee little man. I've always sort of resented that song. That Zacchaeus had stolen from many, many people in his life. And he meets Jesus and immediately he repents of his greed and he gives it back to them more than what he had stolen. He didn't say, I'll get to that later. It was an immediate response of repentance. Beloved, Dear ones, dear brothers and sisters, and some who have not yet come to saving faith because your money has been so dear to your heart that you will not loosen your grip on it in order to grab hold of Jesus Christ with both hands, I say to all of you, if there is any conviction that has come upon your heart today, do not let one moment pass without repentance. If you've cheated others, restore it to them. If you've stolen God's tithe, give it to him now because more than an issue of money, it's an issue of the heart. If you've given your heart to wealth and the accumulation of wealth rather than in service to Jesus Christ, then take your heart back from your wealth and give it to Jesus, who alone is worthy and who alone can bring you true and eternal contentment. Let's go to him in prayer. God, we confess that it is so easy for us when it comes to money, it's easy for us to have divided hearts. We're quick to sing, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee, but I think many of us hold very tightly to our pocketbooks, afraid that you're going to call us to give up those too. Lord, you don't call us to give up anything that you don't promise to replace with yourself and so even if you do call us to give generously perhaps you call us to give a number that will never again be reflected in our checking accounts you do promise to give us yourself because you love a cheerful giver and may the love of Christ be more than enough for us Teach us to say that the Lord is my portion and my cup, that the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Lord, I pray that we would value and love you above all.